Um, so the Buddha, one of the um, original intentions for metta practice was as an antidote to fear. Um, And um, I remember asking once, you know, the the <clears throat> the ways that the the three poisons are described, the three um, ways that are natural luminosity gets clouded over. It's often described as um, greed, hatred, and delusion, or attachment, aversion, uh, delusion. These are the three um, clouds that our practice purifies. And I remember asking early on, like, not so early, um, but a little bit into my practice, asking my teacher, like, why isn't fear one of the three poisons or anxiety? I'm like, that's what I'm dealing with most of the time. <laughs> you know? And he was like, oh, that's aversion. And I was like, okay, got it. <laughs> you know, it's a form of uh, not wanting what's happening, wanting it to be otherwise, but it's a different, instead of... Um, the aggression going outward, it goes inward. And uh, in that story where the Buddha offers the monastics who are fearful some metta, um, maybe you've probably heard this story before, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> they are... Um, he asked them to go out and find a place to basically sit and practice for a while, meditate, like kind of how we're doing here, where um, you know they'll set aside some time, find a dedicated place to practice, and kind of set up camp and and work with their minds and hearts. And so they go out together, and they're like trampling through the forest. They're trying to find a good place to be, and they find this place that they think this is perfect. Like it's right by a stream. So there's fresh water. It's closest to a town so they can go on their alms rounds because they're required to, and they can't keep food. They have to kind of go each day and stay close to the community to, to get it. So it's close enough that they can go on alms rounds, but it's not so close that they're going to have foot traffic or anyone's going to really bother them during other times of the day. And there's trees where they can sleep and it just looks like, wow, this is the perfect place. And no one's there. I'm thinking no one's there. So they set up camp and they go to sleep that night. And all throughout the night, they are tormented by the tree spirits who were there actually, but they didn't see. And they decided, oh, so great. No one's here. We'll just set up camp here. And the tree spirits are furious. And they're like, you trampled our homes. You've terrified our children. Now you're going to get it, basically. 
And so they have terrible dreams. They're up all night. They wake up in the morning and they get out of there fast and they go back to the Buddha and they're like, we can't go back there. <laughs> we have to find a new place. We made a terrible mistake. And the Buddha says, uh, nope, you're going back. And here's the practice that you'll do. You know, you will radiate kindness continuously to all beings that are there in all directions at all times. And so, of course, like with our modern consciousness, this story sounds very resonant, right? Sounds like a gentrification story or a colonization story. Oh, no one's here. We'll just take it. Um, And so there's not a lot of explanation about what happens after the monks go back to that space, but I would like to think that they re-entered it in a very different way than they did the first time. That they asked permission, that they waited until permission was granted and they got full consent, that they you know, attuned themselves to the culture of the tree spirits that were already there, and that they acted and spoke and emanated not only their care for the beings who are there, but their wish not to harm them. But that was like the most kind of present thing on their faces was like this wish not to harm. And that their demonstration of the fact that they were safe people is what made them safe. And what made them feel safe. So metta is still like a really good antidote to fear. Um, I know no one here suffers from anxiety, but (laughs) (laughs) if someone did, (laughs) you know, metta is really good medicine for that. Not because it goes straight to the anxiety and tries to like obliterate it, right? But because it kind of creates this condition in the mind where the anxiety doesn't seem quite so unbearable. It's like a part of the mind, but it's not taking over the mind. It's like um, what my gardener friends teach me about permaculture, right? Where instead of um, you know, attacking the thing that we don't want, we plant good seeds all around it and make the air fragrant <laughs> so that all the beings in the garden are in right relationship with each other. There's a a sutta called the Metanisansa Sutta. It's in the Anguttara Nikaya, one of the um, books in the Pali Canon. It talks about the 11 benefits of metta. I'll read them so that you know what you're 
getting on this retreat, your deliverables. (laughs) Sometimes they take a while to arrive, so. (laughs) If you don't get it all on Thursday, don't worry. It says, uh, you will sleep easily. You will wake easily. You will have peaceful dreams. People will love you. Devas and animals will love you. And devas will protect you. External dangers such as poisons, weapons, and fire will not harm you. Your face will be radiant. Your mind will be serene. You will die unconfused. And you will be reborn in happy realms. It's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Some of these... um, sound very practical and maybe some of them you've already experienced, right? An animal kind of coming close to you, closer than it might have before, or a sense of calm. Some of you reported a lot of calm in the mind, or even if the mind's not calm, being calm about the mind not being calm, (laughs) which also counts. And then some of them sound kind of mystical, right? Like, how is it that um, external dangers such as poisons, weapons, and fire will not harm you? I wouldn't test this one personally. (laughs) But, um, you know, several of these do have a quality of protection that they invoke. Like metta is a protection. And there is this sense that, you know, We're not able to control all experiences. And if something does harm us, it's not that we weren't doing enough metta, right? (laughs) Certainly. And that there is this way in which um, this deep intention to cause no harm is its own form of protection. that it protects the mind from greed, hatred, and delusion. And it demonstrates to ourselves and the world around us that we're trustworthy. And safe. And there's something about being a safe person for others to be around that can keep us safe too. So I wanted to, you know, affirm like some of the ways that metta can really work and some of the um, ways you may already see it working in you. And also to... To really assert that 
in addition to being a, a practice that can be like a healing balm for old wounds and a practice that can help soothe anxiety and fear and a practice that can help us feel safe and protected, that it's also a practice that can really lead us to freedom. I remember talking to one of my teachers, Gina Sharp, uh, once when um, she was uh, one of the guiding teachers, one of the founding teachers of New York Insight. She was um, also the guiding teacher for a long time and one of the founders of the um, People of Color uh, retreat at Insight Meditation Society, which um, yeah, made space for folks of color like me to practice. And many of us became teachers in that early sangha. And I always say she raised me. She raised me from a baby. I was kind of a baby. I was like 22, 23. Um, and I think at some point in that early time, like five, six years in, I noticed that a lot of the people that I had started practicing there with had gone, like it was, this sangha was still going, but the people that I had started practicing with had like moved on. I was still there. And I asked her, I was like, you know, why do people leave? And especially like, why do people leave the POC sangha? At the time it was POC, not BIPOC, it was the early aughts. <laughs> and um, she said, well, I think sometimes in these affinity spaces, we focus a lot on love and compassion because we need it so much and because the culture at large has um, denied that love and compassion to us. And she said, but sometimes if we don't also talk about how we get free, people think that just like love, love, love is all there is. And they got it. And okay, moving on. And so I thought it might be good today, this afternoon, to just share a little bit about how it is also that metta can lead to um, liberation and specifically liberating insight into what the Buddha called the three characteristics or the three um, qualities of this conditioned world, which are um, dukkha, the existence of suffering, anicca, impermanence, and anatta, uh, not self. So the first of these is dukkha, and as I mentioned, it's often translated as suffering, um, I, I have heard that a more faithful translation is unsatisfactoriness because it can be anything in the range from like, you know, an itchy mosquito bite on your, on your ankle that wakes you up too early in the morning 
to like the most profound grief and loss. Like it's all like a spectrum of dukkha. And it is the first noble truth in the Buddha's teachings on, this is foundational Buddhist teaching on um, the four noble truths, uh, which I found such a relief when I first started learning about these teachings, just that like someone was finally acknowledging that not that life is suffering, but that like suffering exists and that suffering is a part of life. And that if I am suffering, it's not just necessarily because I like made a mistake or did something wrong, um, but that, you know, for things to be, for mosquito bites to itch and for us to like lose people that we love and to not like, you know, what's served at dinner and to, you know, just not know why, but feel a little restless sometimes. Like this is all like how it is in this realm. That's not our fault. It's not something we did wrong. That actually this realm is said to have the exact right ratio of suffering and freedom from suffering to allow us to become like truly free. There's other realms that, you know, other teachings describe where like, I don't know, it's much cushier, (laughs) you know, and beings there like live like gods, but they don't have liberating insight into the nature of reality So it's said that we're very lucky to live here. Sometimes we have to convince ourselves of that a little bit. But I think what metta does for the um, recognition of the truth of dukkha is it creates enough of a foundation of love that we can actually face um, what's unsatisfactory. And without enough metta, it's, you know, in my experience is like one of just kind of staying in denial <laughs> and like running away and, um, you know, trying to uh, stay busy enough and like, you know, occupied enough and entertained enough to keep whatever's kind of feeling like it's creeping up and wants to be known at bay but then it doesn't always work because sometimes nobody wants to hang out <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the to-do list is actually done. <laughs> and like, and then what? So it has to do with, you know, the, the, the kind of being able to face the ways in which we um, suffer personally and having enough love in our hearts to want to, change the parts of our suffering that are (laughs) self-imposed. And I think it also allows us to look around at our world and see with eyes of love, like what's um, here that's worth saving and what could really use a little work. I had the honor of 
reviewing a curriculum, an eco-dharma curriculum by an organization in um, uh, D.C. that was aiming to do some environmental justice education for dharma teachers. And it was amazing because it really drove home this, like, where we as teachers, and I think we all as practitioners can um, be of benefit, of service when it comes to facing the current climate crisis. I mean, could there be any deeper dukkha? That it takes a certain amount of love just to be able to look and really see. I um, hand wrote this poem (laughs) (laughs) by Aisha Sadika to, I just think she captures this so beautifully. It's called On Another Panel About Climate, They ask me to sell the future and all I've got is a love poem. (laughs) And she writes, "Hmm. what if the future is so soft and revolution is so kind that there is no end in sight? Whole cities breathe and bad luck is bested by a promise to the leaves. To withstand your own end is difficult. The future frolics about, promised to no one, as is her right. Rage against injustice makes the voice grow harsher yet. If the future leaves without us, the silence that will follow will be an unspeakable nothing. What if we can convince her to stay? How rare and beautiful it is that we exist. What if we stun existence? One more time. When I wake up, get out of bed, My seven-year-old cousin with her ruptured belly tags along. Then follow my grandmother, aunts, my other cousins, and the violent shape of their drinking water. The earth remembers everything. Our bodies are the color of earth, and we are nobodies. Been born from so many apocalypses. What's one more? Love is still the only revenge. It grows each time the earth is set on fire. But for what it's worth, I'd do this again. Gamble on humanity 100 times over. Commit to life unto life as the trees fall and take us with them. I'd follow love into extinction.
Yes, another quality of metta, the heart broken open. I want to talk a little bit about anicca now, uh, impermanence, not separate from dukkha, obviously. (laughs) It's the truth that the things we love are always changing. And so one of the... um, Again, like I think metta allows us to look at the fact that things are always changing and to keep our hearts buoyant enough not to fall into despair, but to recognize the preciousness and to love what is now hard because it will change. I don't know why it makes me think of this, but I was remembering um, when I was 14, I, um, my mom asked me if I wanted a guitar because I'd been talking for a while about wanting guitar lessons. Um, this was the 90s. Um, Kurt Cobain was still with us and I wanted to rock out. And um, I um, said no, because my friend Angela had already gotten a guitar and started lessons the year before, and she was 13. And I thought, she started when she's 13, I'm 14, there's no way I'll ever be as good as her. And, um, you know, somehow I thought that gap would be like frozen in time or that I'd always have the chance to have started playing guitar 30 years ago. (laughs) And of course, now 30 years later, it's like, I don't think I really understood how time worked. (laughs) I don't think I really understood at the time that I'd never be 14 again. And so, you know, looking with eyes of love and with maturity at the way time does go, it's like, oh, if I want to learn to play an instrument, now's the time. Never going to be younger than this. I'll never have more time than I do today. I notice it too, um, being a parent of a young child. um, I feel like two and a half years in my life is like nothing. Like I'm basically, you know, the same. (laughs) It was two and a half years ago. But two and a half years ago, like my kid wasn't even like breathing air. And 
right before I came on this retreat, I was um, cleaning out the closets in my house, as I often do when I'm supposed to be writing Dharma talks. (laughs) (laughs) Never a cleaner closet than on the way to a retreat. (laughs) And I decided to pack up some of my kids' clothes that she no longer fit into and take them to. There's a shop in our, our, um, our town that... Um, takes in um, old kids' clothes that are in good condition and then gives you store credit and you can get new used clothes um, because they grow so fast. And um, and I was, you know, I was kind of doing good. I was like putting the, you know, last year's winter shoes and the tiny little boots and the tiny little mittens and the, you know, the... Um, <laughs> the snow pants with like the huge bottoms and the little tiny legs <laughs> and packing them all up and putting them in the box. And I thought like, am I going to save any of these? And no, I don't think I'm going to have another child. And, um, you know, I brought them to the store and I traded them in my got a store credit and my sister calls me on the phone and I go to say hello to her. And I just start weeping because yeah, I looked around the store and the little, you know, the the baby wraps and the little like black and white, you know, cards that she liked to look at, like um that that time has passed, you know. And it was a hell of a couple years. Um and I hardly remember a lot of it. <laughs> um in the hardness, I, I, I wish I had paused a little more. There's um, a famous uh, gata. It's like a pithy verse from a sutra that describes the situation. Um, it's found in the Diamond Sutra, which is a Mahayana text that's part of the Prajnaparamita Sutras, which are this perfection of wisdom, the um, but like from a think of it as like a feminine perspective on emptiness. So it's not emptiness as like the void, it's emptiness as um, everything. The most common translation says, so you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in the stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. And another translation that I hear is um, a little more literal. It says, as a lamp, a cataract, a star in space, an illusion, a dewdrop, a bubble, a dream, a cloud, a flash of lightning. View all created things like this. Or in... um,
Um, I'll just say that the, the quality of metta when facing impermanence like allows us to like appreciate the preciousness of what we have, whatever it is that we have, and to when it's time to let go, let go with love. And then finally, uh, the way that metta can be a doorway into anatta, the truth that um, it's sometimes called no self, but that's like a very bad translation that leads to a lot of bad behavior. <laughs> it's, called, it's um, you know, better translated as not self or the truth that there's no separate self, right? that um, there's no self that's not in relationship with other selves that my relationships with other selves are what give me existence. Furthermore, that there's no, like, what I think of as myself is not, like, fully coherent, unified, and unchanging, but it's made up of all these different component parts. We joked about uh, how meta to the self is actually meta to all the categories, you know, that we can be our own benefactor, own friend, own neutral person, own difficult person. Um, and it speaks to this, right? So all these different parts. And our task is to love the ball to the best of our ability. And then the other aspect of anatta, which can be known through metta, is um, that circumstances aren't exactly in our control. Have you guys noticed that? Like you can like will something to happen and it doesn't just happen because you said in your mind, I want it to be like this. <laughs> Me too. And that um, is not only, you know, frustrating and irritating, but it's also evidence that this um, sense of self, um, which thinks it's in control and thinks it should be able to manage our own and others' experience and feels shame when we can't do that is um, the reason why it feels so frustrated is that it doesn't actually have that kind of um, that uh, sense of should be able to control is a, a delusion of the false sense of self. Sorry, I know that sounds harsh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it in the sweetest way. <laughs> um, and so in wishing metta, you know, wishing for ourselves to be happy and not suffer and wishing for people we love to be happy and not suffer and facing that sense of, 
I'm wishing this for them. And also I'm not in control of whether or not they feel this way and being willing to love anyway, we get to learn how to love without demand. That's the definition of unconditional love, right? I wish you to be happy and no matter whether you are happy or not, I still love you. I love you until you are happy. I love you if you are never happy. I love you if you never make choices to be healthy. (laughs) I love you anyway. That's freedom. And in starting to expand metta, to wish metta for all beings, we can start to feel, as some of you reported already feeling, the ways that the sense of separation between ourselves and others starts to get thin. You have a being and you're like, wait, was this being an enemy or a friend? They just keep moving, you know? Or we start sending metta to ourselves and suddenly find we're sending metta to a friend. We're like, wait, did I actually make that pivot? Like, how did that metta just start flowing out? It's a felt experience of non-separation, which is part of what the Buddha said is also a characteristic of reality. And it can, there can be like a little bit of grief at like this me that I think I am is actually not all powerful, but how much greater to be a part of everything. What a relief that um, there's no shame in not being able to control things. And so it can lead to an experience of non-separation from ourselves. Actually being intimate with this being here, being close to. It can lead to a sense of non-separation from each other. I remember this one time, you know, I was on retreat and this was an early retreat for me. And we were in Estes Park, Colorado, which is just about as far from Chicago as you can get, which is where I'm from. And in every way, you know, geographically, culturally, everything. And, um, and I was feeling, you know, alienated alone and alone as, human beings are wont to do, <laughs> you know, and, um, and I, um, well, I'll say this, which feels kind of important at the time. Um, and this is still true. You know, I was one of very few, maybe two people of color on this meditation retreat. And that'll make you feel like a real weirdo. Um, In just such a like visceral, visible, tangible way. Like, you know, I knew that if I, like some people could like take a nap and a Dharma talk, but I knew if the teachers looked out, (laughs) they would know if I was there or not, you know? (laughs) Like a little raisin in a sea of oatmeal. (laughs) You know, just... Um, and what I've learned because I wrote a book on friendship and cause I like, I'm just obsessed with this is that like most everybody feels alienated and alone for one reason or another. Um, sometimes it's invisible and that's its own source of suffering. Right. 
But anyway, I was up there on the Colorado mountaintop feeling <laughs> alienated and alone. And we had been doing metta, metta, metta. And, um, I, and the food there was terrible, by the way, not like here. It was like, it was like cottage cheese. Who eats cottage cheese? Like, And, um, and so I was like eating my like cold cottage cheese and like a cold day. And, but I, I like had been doing all this metta practice and I, one time I looked around and I looked at all these people, you know, at these like wood laminate chair, you know, tables. And I was like, um, it wasn't exactly a thought, but it was a feeling. Um, everybody here is my friend. And I had really never felt that before. Certainly not in a sea of oatmeal. <laughs> and um, just tapping into that possibility, you know, it really changed me. It really changed my experience there. So yeah, less separation from ourselves, less separation from each other. And I think for those of us who are inclined towards divinity, uh, less of a sense of separation with the divine. It can really feel like I don't know what else to call it. God is in me and I am in the hand of God. I know that might not be all of your things. It doesn't have to be your thing. The Buddha like routinely declined to comment on whether God existed or not existed. <laughs> People would ask and he'd be like, don't know. <laughs> he would say like, <laughs> it, God neither exists nor doesn't exist. And they were like, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much. <laughs> but from a pragmatic perspective, I find... Um, the idea of God useful, and I find the experience of God um, to be life-giving. And there is a poem that I want to read about this sense of non-separation that comes from the Muslim poet Rumi, as translated by Coleman Barks. Um, It's called, I Have Five Things to Say. And um, in this, in Sufism, in the... um, this mystical tradition of Islam, from what I understand, the relationship with the divine is is experienced as a lover and a beloved. So that's what I think that they're speaking about here. He says, the wakened lover speaks directly to the beloved. You are the sky my spirit circles in, the love inside love, the resurrection place. Let this window be your ear. I have lost consciousness many times with longing for your listening silence and your life quickening smile. You give attention to the smallest matters, my suspicious doubts, and to the greatest You know my coins are counterfeit, but you accept them anyway. My impudence and pretending. I have five things to say. Five fingers to give into your grace. 
First, when I was apart from you, the world, this world did not exist, nor any other. Second, whatever I was looking for was always you. Third, why did I ever learn to count to three? Fourth, my cornfield is burning. Fifth, this finger stands for Rabia and this is for someone else. Is there a difference? Are these words or tears? Is this weeping speech? What shall I do, my love? So he speaks and everyone around begins to cry with him, laughing crazily, moaning in the spreading union of lover and beloved. This is the true religion. All others are thrown away bandages beside it. This is the sema of service and mastery dancing together. This is not being. Neither words nor any other natural fact can express this. I know these dancers. Day and night, I sing their songs in this phenomenal cage. My soul, don't try to answer now. Find a friend and hide. But what can stay hidden? Love's secret is always lifting its head out from under the covers. Here I am. So sometimes I think that um, my experience is that we divide the teachings into two groups, the love teachings and the wisdom teachings, you know. And the love teachings are metta and compassion and equanimity and forgiveness. And the wisdom teachings are the dukkha and nicha and nata and emptiness, and insight. And what I'm trying to say here is that um, this is a false distinction. That metta is a path to liberation. It is not a lesser path. And that for some of us, this is the most appropriate doorway. It's a doorway that we can enter into through the practice of metta and arrive at some of these profound embodied experiences of the nature of reality that allows for a sense of love and ease in the liberation that is letting go. And it's a beautiful way to freedom. The 
Dharma teacher, um, actually one of the founders of the women's retreats. Um, Anna Douglas said it's uh, the quiet way to the happy country. The quiet way to the happy country. Metta. So I thought to close, um, I could just chant for you the Metta Sutta. And um, if you know it, please join me. And if you like, please listen. And you can imagine this love that is not separate from wisdom, this love that is a, a portal to freedom, opening up around us in all directions. And all the beings all around, um, may our practice over this week and this practice today be a benefit to all of them. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa. Karaniya mata kusalena yantam santam padamabhisamecha. Sako ujucha sujucha suacho cha samudu anatimani. Santu Sakocha Subarocha Apakichocha Salahalukavuti Santinriocha Nipakocha Apagabo Kule Suananugido Nacha Kadam Samachare Kinchi Inavenu Pare Pavadeum Sukinoa Kemino Hontu Sabe Satavantu Sukitata Na paro param nikubeta, nati manyeta kata chinam kanchi. Biarosana patigasanya, nanya manya sa dukamicheya. Matayata niyam putam, ayusa eka putam anurake. Ewam pi sababute su manasamba waye parimanam. Metancha sabalo kasmim manasamba waye parimanam. Udamadocha tiriancha asambaram maweram masapatam. Titincharam nisinoa sayanoa yawa tazagatamido. Etam sati maditeya brahma metam viharam midamahu. Ditincha anupagama siliwa dasanena sampano. Kamesu vineagedam nahijatu gabaseyam punare titi. Sadu, sadu, sadu.